1: the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman.
2: On the sun-baked drive of a palace in West Hollywood, a young socialite weeps within the confines of a police cruiser, shielded from the questing cameras and machine-gun voices of frenzied paparazzi. She does not weep because she has been cruelly stripped of all her worldly possessions by a fascist government, nor does she weep because she has been permanently displaced due to her family's political affiliations. She does not weep because she is starving or dying of malnutrition, and she does not weep because her family was slaughtered in a barrage of military bullets. She does not weep because her village was disintegrated in the fiery flash of napalm And she does not weep because she has been photographed in 1972 running across Route 1 in South Vietnam, screaming, too hot, too hot, the skin of her back seared, a young girl running with pain and confusion alongside a handful of bawling children while their village succumbed to a wartime apocalypse. The young socialite wept because she had been remanded to the state of California to serve out a meager sentence, of 23 days, a mere short-timer in a furnished cell, with three hots and a cot, as they used to say. Once she is released in no time at all, she will regain all of the accoutrements of her wealth and fame with the world citizens, much like the fleeing nine-year-old child on that battered strip of Route 1, captured tempestuously by the expert lens of a photographer by the name of Nick but, who coincidentally captured the photo of a weeping Paris Hilton the same exact day 35 years ago, must carry on with their sorry burdens. The very idea of justice or injustice, which is far more prevalent, is one that has haunted me for some time. With all that is transpiring in this fragile world, from the separation of families due to the immigration sweeps in states as varied as Connecticut and Ohio, to the photo in the Times of two Palestinian boys in American hand-me-downs scraping their father's blood from the walls of their home in Gaza. I've long been shaken out of my sense of quiet panic and historical ineptitude. I've resolved to arm myself against the tyranny of misinformation and rampant stupidity, but every response I would put to query remained specious at best. I'm not an expert in economic policy, nor could I profess to being especially knowledgeable in political affairs. But I am not so blinkered that I do not ask pointed questions, particularly about the origins of our existence. Who determines where we will fall upon inception? Whose hand conducts the rolling of the dice, the turn of the roulette wheel? It is form unanswerable and unfailable who dictates our births and our pangs. For it is as if this bit of smoke we refer to as the deity of modern religion were given bodily form. Imagine all the lawsuits the multitudes would file in search of mitigating justice. There would be lines bisecting the earth from end to end for this deity would stand before the tribunal of the people, tried for what some would consider to be egregious crimes against humanity. Just think about it for a moment. How different would your life be if you were born into a favela in Brazil as opposed to a middle class home in Cramford, New Jersey? I often find myself overly concerned with the universe's dilemma. Our oh, very randomness is what confounds me. It is what this it is what it is this that inspires the creative spirit to seek out who we are as a race in vain, in pain, in order to discern why one is doomed to dust and poverty and why another is bereft of the agony of a toiling existence. It is the artist's task, visual and otherwise, to make sense of this disorder, to interpret the poetry of the random, and to try and bring justice into a world that sorely requires it. If a profound knowledge of history is enough to subtract the soul-killing fear of our daily lives when we, when we are so easily mired in the crowd source of information, then this could be shared in a demotic language, one that could be easily understood or resonate with the people. If we heed the lessons of history, then we could truly become masters of our domain. The photo taken by Mr. Ut on June 8, 1972, is a monumental study of history in action. It is burned into generational memory, a profound reminder of the horrors of Vietnam, and proof that another individual's agony could be transmuted into an artist's majestic expression. One only has to examine Picasso's Guernica to see the truth in this. The artist tracks the evil invisible, but so often it traverses the night undetected, sly and oily, with the moonless shimmer of a mindless sturgeon. I am reminded of Lodge Kerrigan's powerful social indictment, Heen. In the film, the camera obsessively tracks the daily travails of the titular character, who may or may not have lost his daughter in the Port Authority bus terminal. We watch this mentally unbalanced character as he eats shabby meals, babbles incoherently, drinks to excess, fucks in a lady's toilet, snorts cocaine, flourishes disability checks, sleeps on highway's grassy divider, beats a man severely, and ultimately kidnaps the eight-year-old daughter of a woman who he's befriended in a seedy New Jersey hotel. Surrounded by the run of humanity, who passed this bedeviled man as if he does not exist, it is easy to note the parallel with our own lives among the dispossessed who we pass obliviously on the beat streets of the city as they sleep on the sidewalks, shoot heroin on building stoops, walk with a menacing talk, and play the part of transparent pariahs. In Keene, we see the promise of a democracy in ruins. He is the perennial outlier, the shadow man who skulks along society's fringes, undetected, a danger to others and to himself. I am rooting for a world that will be divested of blindness so that it can see the people like Cain and strive for the proper medicine, for the medicinant soul. But for today, all I know for sure is this. We are possessed of mysterious organs and mysterious skin, and our looping lives are the emblematic dispersal of riddle and befuddlement. Oh, the better to preach joys upon. Throughout all the horrors, we persevere, dreaming specks in the universal wonder, struggling to see the sun through the thorny trees. Every now and then, we may look to a new day with an unglancing eye, drink in the joy, and leave the death and sorrow to the angels, if only for a brief peace. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Alan Dye. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about him. Alan Dye dreamed of being a pro basketball player, but his love of type... And lack of a jump shot led to his becoming a designer. After working for various advertising and design agencies, including a four-year stint at Ogilvy's brand integration group, Allen went in-house and became design director of Kate Spade in February 2004. Allen's group was responsible for the overall aesthetic of the brand, from the advertising campaign and the website to the paper line and the home collection, and more than a few things in between. In December of last year, Alan moved to the West Coast, where he is currently a creative director with Apple's graphic design team, where he focuses on all things music. Besides working with Apple, Alan has worked with the New York Times, Simon & Schuster, the National Basketball Association, as close as he'll ever come to getting paid for basketball, and New York Magazine. Alan's work has been recognized by a number of design shows and publications, and that's a bit of an understatement, listeners, and he is a regular speaker at design and advertising events. Before leaving the East Coast, Alan was the vice president of the AIGA's New York chapter and served as the chairman of the Young Guns Committee for the Art Directors Club. He lives now with his beautiful wife, Beth, in San Francisco, works in Cupertino, and continues to work on his jump shot. Welcome, Alan. Thanks, Debbie. It's so nice to have you on the show. It's good to be here. This is actually your second appearance. You were one of the original bad boys, and uh, that was a, a fun experience, but now you have your own show, and I'm so pleased. You should have your own show back then. I
3: know, I know. And, you know, uh, Having a handbag designer on the bad boys of design never quite felt right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <An hour. laughs> no, no, no. It was wonderful. So now I get you all to myself for an hour and I want to start with one of my my um rather predictable questions, but one that I can't resist asking because I'm so curious about people's origins and their lives and their careers. And so because I don't already know this about you, I have to ask, what is your first creative memory?
3: Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> You know the funny thing is, I knew I for some reason. You know, I know you always ask that, and of course, I was I I I, I couldn't think too 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 long and hard about it. And, and I grew up in this like kind of wickedly creative family. My my dad was a philosophy professor and kind of taught world religions, and my mom uh, was a junior high special education teacher, mm-hmm. which means they were kind of well equipped to raise a, a designer. I think. Okay. Um, <laughs>
2: and lots of, well, how, well, how were they well equipped to reduce the design? I'm not going to let well, that one go by
3: because um, i think I'll, my mom was good at is very good at dealing with, with, uh, with junior high the junior high mentality and my, my father was, was was pretty good at at um at communications and keeping things calm and understanding the connections between uh disparate subjects okay if you will so um it was. It was. It was. It was. A, it was a, they were. They were a really good combination. Let's just put it that way.
2: And your brother is also an artist, of yes. course. He's a photographer. So yes. I guess that you could make a good claim for their raising creative sons.
3: <laughs> yes. Yeah. And they, the funny thing was, they. They both. Were, you know, I don't think you'd ever call either one of them an artist, but they had. We always had this kind of woodworking business, and my dad was a, was a carpenter as well. He he kind of paid his way through college as a photographer. And, but his his father and kind of woodworking has always been in the family. So, I have very early memories of of working down in the wood shop along with my father, and making things out of out of wood. He made a lot of folk toys and and cabinetry and and, and furniture and things like that. And really, I mean, I think it, it's it's kind of what taught me a lot about design because a lot of it had to do with process. And I have these distinct me- memories of him saying, you know measure twice and cut once and you know wow. it's it's a lot about process and, and kind of thinking things through and knowing that there's 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 a a beginning and an end to all these projects. So really when I think about it, it all goes back to kind of sitting in my in my uh my parents' basement in Buffalo working on working in the wood shop.
2: You know? And do you remember the first thing you ever made?
3: Gosh. You know, the I I, I remember we made these like dioramas.
2: <laughs> I love dioramas. <laughs>
3: Uh, they were for like this aquarium in Niagara Falls, and it was pretty cool because I think I won the best. It was like a dolphin diorama that we made out of wood, and I drew the background and everything. Um, and actually, I think you know, I think I got like second place. My brother won first. Oh wow! So yeah, it was kind of a you know competitive,
2: competitive, competitive and, even yeah. then, huh? <laughs>
3: yeah, well, maybe
2: a little bit, but we were never
3: overly competitive. I have to say, we, we've always been fairly um, supportive of one another.
2: And you know what I love the most about Woodshop? The smell. I think that the well, that, smell of Woodshop is just you know, completely unique and Yeah, yeah. I mean, we—we, we, I mean, for
3: sure. We, And the great thing was we had this wood-burning fireplace, and it's amazing how the, the, the memories have not so much to do with what we made but with the sense and the, the feel of it all, you know? I mm-hmm. mean, um, there's just kind of wonderful moments of walking upstairs and getting yelled at because you attract sawdust all over the house and all that good stuff
2: oh absolutely you know Thinking getting your band. hand
3: caught in the yeah. bandsaw. oh
2: how oh, awesome. how awful Well, listen, we have to take our first break. Uh, When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about your history and your trajectory to superstardom. Um, But for the moment, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the wonderful creative director at Apple, Alan Dye. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away.
4: Four oh ones stock, mortgage, retirement, wealth. We cover it all. Voice America Business
1: it has been said that to live is to choose but to choose well, you must know who you are and what you stand for, where you want to go and why you want to get there on Reap What You Sow with host performance management specialist and executive coach Alana Daly. Achievement and success through expanding yourself and your life is available at the click of a mouse. Reap through redefining your goals. Educate your mind, your body, your conscious and unconscious. Apply what you learn and plan and it shall be success over and over again and wealth result when you Reap regularly. Reap what you sow. With Alana Daily broadcast each Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Reap what you sow. Learn the rules of the game, then play better than anyone else.
5: to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe, where creative professionals speak out about their work and what inspires them. We're speaking with Paul Sidlow, the CEO and founder of Resonate, a design agency that develops the media identity for clients across a broad range of platforms. Paul, tell us how you begin the process of creating a brand for a client.
0: We create a language that bears the brand of that company. To do that, we will take keywords of a brand attribute, smart, illuminate, and make that into an icon. And so our job is to provide, quickly define that language. And it's a little bit like sculpting. you got a block, and somewhere in there is that person. And you carve that person out through this process. And the faster you can get to that, the more efficient you are, and the more time you save that customer in getting to market.
5: You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Paul Sidlow talks about creating imaginary worlds
4: keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business.
1: We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman.
2: Welcome back. It is 1218 Pacific Time and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business live from San Francisco. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the Creative Director at Apple. Alan Dye. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Alan, our phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And, Alan, we do indeed have a caller. We have Gregory Hi. from New York. Gregory, thanks for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Alan. Hi, Hi Gregory. Um,
5: now, of course, because you work for Kate Spade, you're going to think this question is kind of strange. But I, I guess it's a latter-day thing, as far as I, I know, where clothing
3: designers uh, somehow... Uh, went to housewares. Right. Um, right. I, I guess perhaps it started with Ralph Lauren. Um, but, you know, one wonders
1: what, why that never really happened with Chanel or Dior or Givenchy or Balmain or Balenciaga or Scaparelli or, or any of those designers. Um, do you think in, in some way it takes focus away from their ability to design clothes?
3: Well, that's a – I think in the case of Kate, it certainly didn't because – she was such a. Um, she she had such a point of view on design, whether it was her handbags or her clothing, or certainly her home collection, that it kind of it just kind of became an extension of who she was. Um, I think in the day and age that we live in, where designers um, really have the ability to play in so many different arenas, it just becomes. Um, it, it's it's it's. I wonder if a Chanel wouldn't have been doing different things.
1: Well, I'm sure Elsa probably would have really liked to have done insect plates and things like that. Exactly. <laughs> so be it's kind exactly, of perfect. Yeah.
3: But um, For sure. But, I mean, to but, know but
1: if you thought that,
2: but thank you very much. Of course. Well, it's so interesting because I lo- one of the things that I love most about Hermes is the fact that they have, you know, the most fabulous scarves and fragrances, but then they also have unbelievably gorgeous plates and dinnerware and. It's the high water mark. Of oh my God. Elegance. Absolutely. So, Alan, I have to ask you a bit of a trivial question. It's something that I've been thinking about for... Well, on and off for the last two weeks because I didn't do a show last week, and your photograph has been on my website for the last two weeks. And I have to tell you, I've gotten more email about your photograph than I've gotten about any show all year. Which is, is that Alan Dye or Hugh Laurie from House? Because everybody apparently thinks that you have a rather oh, striking resemblance to okay. <laughs> Hugh Laurie. Okay. And so I need to know if that's something you've been asked before, if it's just this particular photograph.
3: Well, I'm glad we're really getting into the hard-hitting <laughs> right. design
2: questions. Exactly.
3: Um, I'm not kidding you When I say that it's it's, uh, it's the point where I wear dark sunglasses and a, and a cap because um, uh, you know especially in New York I would get pulled aside literally all the time and it, I, as a matter of fact I was just in New York last week and I, I was on a flight back and the 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 there's a mother and daughter sitting next to me and they kind of leaned over, they kept looking at me and I said oh shit this is this is going to be the house thing again and literally like at the end of the flight they kind of said we have to ask are you who Hugh Laurie I said no no that's 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 not me but I'll take all I can get. Okay.
2: Well okay, so well I, I I think you're actually more handsome. But okay. in any case, Thanks. let's let's talk a little bit more about your history. So sure. you you were born in Buffalo. Your father um certainly influenced your, your creative direction. Both you and your brother are artists. Yep. Um where did you go to college and, and what to, did you study? I went to
3: Syracuse and, you know, it was I guess it was a different time then because I, I was always interested in um in art and, and, and and, but not so much in design, believe it or not. I went to school for for painting and illustration mm-hmm. um, initially, showed up at Syracuse um, gosh, and really didn't you know really realized pretty quickly that I wasn't that great of a draftsman <laughs> I, mean, I wasn't as good as an art of, of an artist as as kind of my colleagues. But the funny thing was and, and one of the reasons why I thought that was because I said, God I've always been infatuated with drawing letter forms and typography and all of that. And then, you know, sometime early on freshman year, uh, this, these professors from the communication design program came in and started talking about the communication design program. And I said, oh, my God, that's what I'm meant to do. Oh. But how embarrassing is this, that I didn't even know that you could really make a career of it, make a career as a, as a graphic designer. I don't know. It, I guess, you know, at the time, like back when I went to high school, which, goodness, wasn't that long ago, you know, you you kind of studied, and, and I guess my focus was on like getting out and playing basketball and chasing girls and all the things you're supposed to do. I think, as a high school student, it wasn't so much on, you know, where I was going to be in 25 years. Uh-huh. But I, I <laughs> again, I'm embarrassed to even say it, but I truthfully, um, you know, didn't even know that there was this kind of world of graphic design out there. But but once I once, um, you know, they kind of described the program I knew it was for me, and I, I really, to be honest with you, I lucked out with Syracuse because. It was a program, um, and still is, but at the time it was run by this guy named Ken Hine. who ended up being a real mentor to me. And Ken was kind of an old New York uh, designer from, he had been kind of um, in the New York scene in the 60s and 70s, and really taught us to, to, to understand typography. We were only use, allowed to use, you know, three or four typefaces, and we cut Ruby list and did, did all the things. Ah, uh,
2: Ruby list Yeah, it was really about,
3: you know, the craft of design, you know?
2: And
3: how else did he mentor
2: you? Um, how I'm sorry. How else did uh, Ken mentor you? Oh, you know, we just
3: spent a lot of times. Uh, he had office hours on Friday afternoons, and he spent a lot of time just talking to me about like his thoughts on design um, and the things that he had learned in the in the field. And really, you know, what I think what he taught me was that design really is an exercise, and that you really have to work at it. And you know, I, I have the the one kind of wonderful memory I have is you know I was a bit of a yeah, I have to say, I worked pretty hard, but, you know, I was, was a little bit of an overachiever. Mm, and you? you know, yeah. You know, greatest I'm, director
2: at Apple at, you know, 30-something? Just,
3: just a hair. Um, mm. So, you know, I remember going to class one day, and, and we had a crit, and I think I was doing an identity for, like, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. It was probably like a salsa or something horrible like that. And, you know, I, I remember going into the the, the critique and, and, and covering the wall with my sketches and, of course, you know, I was really into Alvin Dots and drafting and that sort of stuff, so I had all these things stuck up there. And I remember, I remember being so proud of the work and then Ken saying, you know, Alan, I'm really glad that you got all this bullshit out of your system. Now you can do some good work. You know? And it's something that I've taken yeah. with me, like I've taken that with me for, for quite a while because I, 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 that's still how pretty much every project I've ever worked on, worked on goes down. Yeah. You know, you, you throw some things down and you think, God, this is, this is really coming together. And then, like, you know, six hours later you take a look at it and you're like, man, it's a good thing I got that bullshit out of my system.
2: Yeah. Yep. Pimpy yet degenerate, as Woody Allen would say.
3: Yeah.
2: So was your first job out of the gate out of Syracuse at Landor? It was, yeah. So how did you get a job at Landor right away? What did you do to get something so big?
3: Uh, gosh, you know, I was lucky enough. Syracuse had a really great program that only graduated really a handful of people. They're pretty rigorous about who they allow out. And Syracuse, at the time, uh, had three graduates that were working at Landor. So it very quickly became almost like a graduate school um, for Syracuse. So they were lucky. I was lucky enough, and I think my book was was you know was was in pretty good shape at the time, and um, horrible to look at now. But um, they 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 were good enough to kind of bring me in and and, and offer me the job. And I had had a bunch of other job offers, another one up in Connecticut. And I, I remember just sort of uh, really debating where yeah, I would end up. Yeah, it was it was. I mean thank, I mean nothing against the folks up in Connecticut, but, but thank goodness I dove into new york
2: and what was the experience like right away working on the biggest brands in the world
3: uh, it was i mean it was just such a such a wonderful experience for me because it was at a time when there was just tons and tons of work out there and Landor was very you know um, i guess there were very you know there was tons of work coming into the studio and if you wanted to to to, to to be the guy who was there late and making a lot of work, you could you could be that guy, and, and they were happy to give you as much as you could take on. So I very quickly kind of rose. I don't know if I I, don't, I wouldn't say I rose to the ranks, but you know I was just eager to make a lot of work at the time, and uh, they were eager to to kind of take on a lot of work. So it, it was a, it was a good arrangement. And the nice thing about being there at that time was there was just some really good other folks there to draft off of, and they were very open to me making a lot of bad work as well, and mm-hmm. making a lot of mistakes, and putting me in front of clients and.
2: What was the biggest mistake you made? Um, well, you know, I, I, gosh, I'm
3: trying to think of a big mistake.
2: Or I, a mistake, knowing
3: you, a mistake. Well, I learned, I think it was more about, I think what, it, what, what that experience taught me was at the time we were taking in a lot of work to clients, and I learned that if you show, it to, if you show a client something you don't believe in, they're going to pick that piece. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, you have to be. Isn't
2: it funny how that always works that
3: way? I mean, that was the biggest lesson, and and it's a very you know that's a very slippery slope. So. Um,
2: now, how do you know when something is is good or some, and and why would why would you necessarily bring in something that you didn't feel strongly about?
3: Uh, you know what I think it is that, uh, that in those days I was much more into the kind of graphic design of it all, mm-hmm. and I was much more smitten with style. Uh. Um although I still am very much, you know, I think that plays a big role in it. Um, but I was much more into, like, we need to get this, I'd, you know, they weren't necessarily ideas, they were more of executions.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so now I think, you know, hopefully I'm judging things based not only on their kind of flawless execution, but also on um, how well they kind of answer the, the strategic brief,
2: mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Now, what was? Tell, tell me about some of the brands that you worked on at Landry, if you can, or one brand oh, that you really enjoyed working
3: the, on. The, the best one by far was we redid all the brand identity and packaging and everything for Molson,
2: uh-huh. the,
3: the beer company. And, yes. and it was really important to me because I grew up in Buffalo, you know, literally, you know, ride your bike over to Canada. So, you know, for so long, you know, folks who, you know, my, my parents and friends and family had no idea what I kind of did for a living. hmm you know and I said oh I work at this brand identity firm and you know it's like
2: yeah that's a tough one people don't get it and yeah. I, I, yeah. I've suffered with that for years
3: yeah so then you know I said oh you know what I designed I designed the new label for Molson Beer and somebody was like you know the skies opened bingo. up bingo you know? yeah yeah so even now when I go back to Buffalo they're like oh Alan designs beer bottles
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful yeah and yeah. so were you the primary the lead designer on that account yeah I was and so is your work still on the market? You know what is funny?
3: I just saw some Molson six-packs here in San Francisco, believe it or not, and it was a new, there was a new package, the new label.
2: Oh, all these years later. It was later. kind of sad. It was kind of, you know. Now, now, how do you feel about market research? Did you do a lot of market research? Was your work influenced by a lot of market research at Landor? Uh, it certainly was.
3: It certainly and was. Do you have
2: a particular feeling about it? I know people, some people have very staunch feelings about it being, you know, sort of the, the devil's work, but I, I just wonder what you think.
3: I think in some cases it is the devil's work. In, 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 in the case of – it depends on how it's done. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, I think right. you can get some really great feedback from folks on a one-on-one base, basis where you're, where you're having an open conversation. But in the case of a beer company, you know, we would drag, you know, 15 different comps into a room – and I'm not, I don't, hopefully I'm not giving away the secret sauce here to, to what was going on at the time, and I'm sure it's much different now. But um, then we'd sit down with, you know, 25 guys around a table and ask them about the new the, the beer label designs. And, you know, it very quickly becomes a study in alpha male, you right. know, because as soon as you pull the one out and the, and the kind of guy, the gregarious guy, who, by the way, it's 3 in the afternoon and you've got, you know, supposedly a group of people who make seventy-five thousand dollars or more in rural Pennsylvania, who just happen to have the time on a you know weekday afternoon to be talking about beer bottle designs for fifty bucks. Right. Yeah. You know, already it's like there's so many things built into it. But the, you know, you pull something out, and the first guy says, "That looks that that you know that label looks gay." Or some <laughs> sort of horrible comment like that. Like who's going to be the guy that stands up and says, "Actually, you know, I really love the yeah. that makes me want to drink that." Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so I think there's time, I mean, that's a really bad example, but... I no, think it
2: isn't. It's actually a wonderful example. You know, I just found that,
3: I found that happening a lot early in my career, so it really did leave a bad taste in my mouth. But, um, you know, I, I, I think there is a place for, I think there certainly is a place for, for market research. But, you know, working with people like Kate and Andy, who have strong opinions about their brand, also make you feel like, well, gosh, if, if you really love what you do and you have a, a good gut for it, Sometimes maybe you don't need it so much.
2: Now, before we talk about Case State, I, I want to try to, in some ways, keep this in order, if possible. <laughs> you went from Landor to Brand Integration Group. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And so you worked for Brian Collins, the wonderful Brian Collins. Yes. And um, tell me, just very briefly, if you can, one of the <laughs> biggest things you learned at working at Big.
3: Oh, I mean, it. it, it Big was. Big was a. Uh, I mean, it was. It was. Just a wonderful experience, top to bottom. I mean, it was it was with, not without its kind of craziness, as you can imagine.
2: Now, is it true you you would work um, many many uh, 24-hour days? Yeah,
3: no, that was pretty much the norm. I I was I, funny. I joked at one point that you know working there for four years was kind of like you know, 21 dog years or something like that. But um, yeah, we would. I remember one spell. We I think it was January to definitely may time frame where we didn't have we didn't have a um a day off as a matter of fact the the, the story i was it's not even a, a happy story whatsoever but the you know on 9 11 i had just gotten out of the car to go upstairs and take a shower i'd gotten the car home at you know 7:30 in the morning um because we were there all night working so i had just gotten home when kind of all that happened
0: oh my god so
3: it was like this you know, it, was, it reminds me of those those days of kind of pulling very real all nighters. But um, I think the, it was it was just the, the hard work was you know it was a, a product of a lot of things. You know, Brian, you know Brian, I think starts his day at two in the afternoon, so yeah. you know that's also the way he kind of operates. Uh, but yeah, we worked pretty hard.
2: What was the most interesting thing you learned while you were at Big?
3: I think you know it, truly it was. We would really work hard at doing great work for clients that um, sometimes weren't the sexiest of clients.
2: Mm-hmm. You for know? example, can you, can you share that?
3: Sure. I mean, the, the, we did some really interesting work for Motorola
2: mm-hmm. from
3: an identity standpoint and then from just kind of an overall look and feel. Uh, I think they were kind of they, – they, 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 you know, they came to big originally, I think, looking for a new logo. But we were able to convince them that it wasn't their logo that was broken. It was kind of everything that surrounds it, mm-hmm. that informs it, that, that was kind of broken. So we, we worked to create a create a, a story for them that, you know, in the end, actually made their logo look pretty cool. So.
2: And then you went off to Kate. Yes. So how did you get the job at Kate Spade? Tell us how that came to be.
3: Well, you know, as these things go, it's it's New York. It's a small world. Um, I worked very closely with Michael Ian e Kay. Mm-hmm. At big, at big for, yeah. for quite a while and, and he was you know um not only a good friend but also someone that that taught me a lot uh, uh michael had a good relationship with kate and andy he had actually designed the kate spade logo uh, uh i think it was around 2000 2001 and kate and andy called and said we, we you know we need to bring somebody in Um, uh, we're looking for a design director and it, could you recommend anybody and uh, michael was good enough to recommend me and uh, Kate and Andy were lucky, or were, they weren't lucky enough, but they were good enough to take a chance on a chance on a guy who hadn't really worked in the fashion business. But I think they kind of liked that. Um, so you know, after like eight or nine months of interviewing, wow, eight or nine months. Kate and Andy, you know, it's a it's a tight you know it's a tight family over there. So they they don't you know when they bring someone in, it's it's, it's a lot about personality and fit and tone and manner and all that stuff. So. so
2: it wasn't a matter of Michael recommending you, they calling you, you coming in and, and them saying, Hey, you're the right guy. They have they must have seen hundreds of people in eight nine eight or nine. I would months. think
3: they probably did, yeah. Yeah. I don't know the whole backstory there, but you know. Um, I would assume that there was a, a fairly wide net cast.
2: And so you, you started at Kate and then you really came up with such a unique visual language and such a unique way of expressing the brand, which I think, you know, you could see how your early stints at Landor or Big really um, influenced that the strength of the brand that you built. What was it like to go well, into a completely different environment and it, come up with this really new way of looking at things? I mean it was wonderful because, you know,
3: my experience at Big taught me about a lot about integration, right? You know, we had to work really hard with the with the, with the folks who were doing the advertising. We had to you know, work really hard with the client on really trying to kind of tell a story consistently over all different types of media. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you're, when you're not actually on the client side, it's really hard to dive deep into all those different touch points that, mm-hmm. that a yeah. consumer might experience. But going in-house at Kate Spade was fascinating for me because it gave me a chance to not only think about the advertising, um, the packaging, and the collateral, and all those things that you, you may typically do at an agency, but it was a chance really to say, okay, let's think about that. You know, the 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 price tag. You know, let's think about every you know every touch point.
2: Yeah, well, you you did, films, up, you, know. you did you did you came up with the paper line. Right. I was just in a case debate about two weeks ago, and all those wonderful books that you recommended that they put up were still all there, right, and, the and, store in Soho.
3: And you know, a lot of that had to do with obviously you know Kate and Andy. I can't take gosh, I, I take very little credit for any of that because Kate and Andy obviously had the vision and there was a you know they also had a partner Julia leach who was just brilliant at merchandising and really understood uh, where Kate and Andy's hearts and minds were at so you know there was there was a, an amazing team of people there that, that that were a big part of that but what what it all what the whole thing was about was really creating this experience you know and I think it was it was really fun to dive really deep into like every aspect of of walking in the store and who are the people you're meeting and, you know, um, the conversations that, that, you know, know, hiring the right sort of people that are having the right sort of, you know, conversations and what's the art on the wall and, you know, things beyond,
2: frankly, design. Right. Now... Was it difficult for you working in it? Oh, I know you did work with Jack Spade, the brand. Right, right. But working for Kate Spade, was it difficult working on a brand that's so utterly feminine and <laughs> so um, different um, from, from well, the male
3: experience? It, it, you <laughs> know, it was. I, I think for a little while I was a little bit ham-fisted about things. But, no, I mean, for me, I you know, I'm not afraid to say that I was I was kind of – I I I kind of was really comfortable with it pretty quickly, you know. Um I've always kind of I always have had an interest in fashion and and um, and while I don't think I think Kate and Andy would, would kind of shudder if they if they um, were, call, were, were called a fashion company but in a lot of ways that's what they do um,
2: well certainly lifestyle and, yeah. and certainly yeah. more from Kate Spade's perspective I think with the Kate Spade brands perspective more of a the female lifestyle right. There is a certain gestalt that the Kate Spade brand has though that I think is, is very unique and mm-hmm. um particularly feminine. Yeah, um, and it's a lot about
3: I think it's a lot about the muscle memory and building you know, building the understanding of what that language is and what those cues are that kind of tell the Kate Spade story. Yeah. And then from there it was kind of really comfortable.
2: What was the one thing that you did there that you feel most proud of?
3: Oh gosh. Um, I think it was and it has a lot to do with the people. We had a really great a group of people working there. And the last thing we did, I mean, beyond the ad campaigns and some of the films that we made, which were really fun and, and certainly things that Andy held really close to his heart, the one thing that we did towards the end of my time there was we, we published this, uh, a bunch of little kind of art books, if you will, mm-hmm. that were each made by the individual designers in the studio. Um, and it was just a great little project because they were products that we eventually sold in the store they helped tell the Kate Spade story in a kind of offbeat sort of way. So there they were goofy little photo books or flip books or books of drawings. Um, but th- it was really great because it completed a circle between creating product that helps con- kind of convey the message of this kind of quirky brand, but it also really helped the designers to kind of within my studio or within our studio to kind of express themselves in a new and interesting sort of way. There was no boundaries. There was no brief. There was no restraints so it gave them a chance to to, to kind of make some work and, and be proud of it and keep them fresh um and challenged so it was it was i don't know that was one of the things i was most proud of for sure
2: and then from kate you were recruited to apple but before we get started with my questions about your current experience we do have another caller um isabel from new york thank you for calling design matters hi debbie hi alan I actually have a question about Apple. Ah, perfect segue. (laughs) Thank you. when I I set up iTunes and I see all the the formatting and the graphics, are you the person that's entirely responsible for the layouts that I see?
3: No, not at all. Actually, iTunes is designed by a separate group.
2: Okay. Yeah. And and I also want to know, do you find the sector, I'm going to call Apple technology, versus the retail sector, um, do you find it a lot more different creatively to work with them, or do you feel as if, like, everyone appreciates beauty plus ease of use and navigation and so on?
3: Well, I do think everybody, I can definitely agree that I think everyone does appreciate beauty and ease of use. Um, but a lot of what we do, we, I am very heavily involved in the retail experience here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's been, it's been not as difficult a transition in terms of, Switching, if you want to call them, uh, I guess sectors as as you would imagine, I mean the, the, both Kate Spade and, and Jack Spade and certainly Apple are they're, they're both brands that take design very seriously and then also take the consumer experience really seriously and you know um, care about care deeply about kind of big ideas but are really concerned about the details. so it's just been you know like I said earlier, it's been kind of learning a new language for me.
2: Okay, well, good luck with that. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you, Isabel. Um, Ellen, we have another caller. Um, We have Jenny. Jenny on the line. Hi. Hi, Jenny. Hey, Jenny. Hi. Um, I'm a huge fan of Apple. I actually had the first-generation iPod, and I got it within days of the launch. (laughs) Yeah. Um, My question is about the next big technology, the iPhone. Okay. And sort of, I mean, is it, first of all, like just huge buzz around the company in in anticipation of the launch later this month. And also, why is it only on uh, AT&T?
3: Well, Jenny, this is probably one of those questions that I can't totally answer. I I truly don't. I can't answer the why is it only on AT&T question for sure. Um, Not because of secrecy. I just I actually don't have the answer to that. I I don't know. Um, Your first question was, Hold on. What was your first question? <laughs> Sorry, Just I mean, about,
2: I guess, the buzz and excitement around. Oh, that. oh. yeah.
3: I mean, it's been it's been
2: pretty. And how you're? How much you're tied in with that? With you know, things I'm things I'm,
3: things. I'm focused more on kind of the iPod world,
2: mm-hmm. but
3: um, but without a doubt, you can you can imagine we're not a huge 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 trade of staff. So uh, all hands have been on deck with 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 iPhone in a lot of ways. So. Um, it's really been, for me, just fascinating to kind of sit back and, and see how it all transpires. But, you know, certainly um, Apple's a brand that's getting a lot of attention. in The iPhone, you know, you, it almost has gotten more attention than anyone could dream of. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see how it all plays out in the 29th.
2: It absolutely will. Yeah. Have you ordered one, Jenny? Or Not can you you can't Not even yet. order one yet? Oh, can I'm you, have a, a no, mobile unfortunately customer? Unfortunately, you can't. <laughs>
3: Unfortunately, you can't.
2: <laughs> so on the 29th, they will be launching, and then everybody can go to the iPhone uh, website and get their phone that way. Is that? Yeah,
3: um, I think you be able. What to stores? Apple stores and then AT&T. Uh, stores as well.
2: Oh, okay. Because I've always gotten my iPods through the websites. Oh, so yeah. Have... I'm
3: sorry. I'm sorry. And obviously the uh, Apple.com. Yeah,
2: okay, Apple good. Apple online. Yeah. So let me ask you a little bit, we have one, a minute or so before our next break. So um, you moved to Apple six months ago. Right. all, um, what was it like to move from New York to San Francisco? <laughs>
3: um, that was a huge change of pace for sure. Um, it's funny, I was talking earlier about how I was back in New York last week and I was walking down the street, and the only way I can describe this is by telling you a little story. But
2: oh, good, um, good, good, good. Well, I was um, walking
3: down the street. We've been my my
2: executive producer over at Voice America. Give give us this minute to talk about this
3: story, and then oh, we'll Oh, I'll tell break. it really, really quickly. Okay. Basically, I was walking down the street, and I got completely passed by like a seventy-five-year-old woman carrying like ten bags of groceries. So that's kind of in a nutshell how I explain what's happened. I mean, it's really in a lot of ways, it kind of forces you to slow down just a little bit. Wow. So, good. It's been good.
2: Well, we actually have one another caller. Let's take this caller right before the break. We have Dane from Missouri. Dane, thank you for calling Design Matters.
3: Hello, Debbie. Hello, Alan. Hi there. Nice to hear you guys. Um, I just I have a question about Apple as well. And um, my question is, as a company that is um, so often creating influence, like in our culture and our society, um, in many different forms of design, um, what is influencing you all as a design team? And what is impacting your revolutionary design and the way that that is? It's always like current with like our current culture and standard. Well, I think I think um, we, you know, this is this gets a little bit back at, to the to the research question. Mm-hmm. We're, we're we're we what what drives us is really what we think, you know, consumers would want, but it's more about like what we think we would want. You know, in a lot of ways, we—that's a really
2: we, wonderful way of putting
3: it. You know, we're not running around asking everybody give us. You know, and, and and you know, Steve plays a big role in this as well. But you know, it's really about creating products that 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 are. You know, there's a, there's a lot of rigor behind making them as easy to use as as possible, but also having the things on there that and and, and work in a way that we think makes a lot of sense. So you've got a lot you got a lot of passionate people here. So it's almost like we don't need to get to get out and. Um, ask others does that make sense yeah definitely um just a quick last question on
0: part of that is as part of designing things that people want and Apple's stance on sustainability and how they are trying to do more to care for the environment did that come from within as well
3: um you know i again that's a good that's a question i probably can't truly answer i don't know i don't don't know the answer to that like again i've only been here for a few months but yeah it's a huge focus obviously if you know um it's a huge focus of everything we're doing moving forward, awesome. for sure. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Good work.
2: Jane, thank you so much for calling. Well, Alan, we're going to take our, our next and last commercial break, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about what you're doing currently. In the meantime, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is a wonderful creative director at Apple, Alan Dye. We'll be right back with
4: our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. Strengthening your financial goals. The leader in business talk radio. Voice America Business.
5: Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Paul Sidlow of design agency Resonate. Paul, where do you see technology taking us in terms of design?
0: I think that we're kind of reaching that that point in time where we have this tremendous opportunity to uh, and responsibility to use these tools to create wonder and create free energy. Free energy is this ability to have an idea and I, I connect and I'm enabled to get any kind of information frictionlessly, perfectly. And present it in a way that is easily understood. Simplicity is uh, one of the, the greatest final destinations of great design. If you can simplify it to one thing, then it, then it's a phenomenally functional piece of art in, in terms of how it functions around point in time.
5: You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. For more information, visit adobe.com.
4: Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business.
1: We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman.
2: Live from San Francisco, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the creative director at Apple, Alan Dye. Would like to join our conversation? We have a question for Alan. This is your last opportunity. Our phone lines are open. You can call one eight six six four seven two five seven nine zero. So, Alan, we were talking a little bit about your current job, which is Creative Director at Apple, where you are responsible for all things music. So, can you tell us a little bit about your role and, and what exactly uh, is your big charge now that you are? Well,
3: within our within in our design group, we have a we we you know we we obviously have a few different areas that we think about, whether it's Mac or the new phone or or music. And and my team really focuses on music. So it's everything to do with, you know, new products, how we talk about the products, how we message the products, but also, um, you know, a lot to do with, you know, we're oftentimes challenged with um, not necessarily – we're we're challenged with how we can communicate some of the the issues that we have surrounding music. So, in other words, uh, oftentimes – My group is asked not only to really think about how we, you know, how we tell the story of a new product, but also if we've we've, we've had a product that's that's already launched, you know, how do we sustain that message and make that relevant, make that relevant to consumers kind of all over the world.
2: Mm-hmm. And I have a, uh, an email question that I got about your your current job, and I got okay. this email question from the designer and illustrator Felix Sockwell, oh. and he wanted me to ask you uh, if your move to San Francisco has given you more time for personal expression in your work.
3: Um, gosh, well. There's, there's, I think there's two parts of that question. The first part is if I have any time to do personal work. Which, <laughs>
2: which, which, I love that you're deconstructing <laughs> a question. This is great.
3: Which, which you know, would certainly – I would certainly say I absolutely have no time whatsoever for personal work. And then I would follow that up by saying, but, of course, I, I still end up taking on all these projects that I have no time for, mm-hmm. which, which, you know, always just scores me plenty of points with with Beth. Mm. Um But you know, in terms of personal expression in my work, you know, I would say, no, I'm I'm, I didn't come here to make the the work look any more Mm Allen. That's for sure. But it's really you know allowed me to come in and kind of have a point of view on um, everything from lifestyle photography to um, some of the films we're making, or or the you know um, you know I I think I have had an influence. But if it's, if, it's be, if it's a personal influence, I, I kind of, no, I, I haven't had too much of a, of a, I haven't put a personal Allen stamp on anything. Right. So that's kind of a good thing.
2: Are you still doing freelance work back? Uh... Um,
3: no, of course not. <laughs> no, no. no, I really shouldn't be. But I, I, I still, you know, uh, I, I still kind of can't help but take on a little book jacket here or there or do an illustration for Brian over at the Times um, whenever he asks because, you know, I think it's important. Yeah, you know, and I think it's really important. I'm, I'm I'm one of those designers who kind of constantly has to be making things, mm-hmm. and you know it, it goes without saying that, that you know I do spend a lot of time in meetings, so I still have this urge to be to be crafting mm-hmm. and to be making. So it's it's a it's a really great outlet, and I'm I'm lucky to have all those great friends in New York who who are uh, who are willing to, to to throw me a little bit of work here and there.
2: Now, so how do you how do you approach design at Apple?
3: Um, it's, it's pretty rigorous, you know, the, the, the approach is always about, you know, what's the clearest way that we can, uh, it's, it's about making things clear and easy. Um, it's about telling the story in a way that helps the consumer really, um, or helps our, our consumers get the most out of their products. Mm -hmm. And then it's about telling the story in a way that's kind of delightful and surprising,
2: you know? And
3: do you work with a very big team? Um, yeah, there's a there's a pretty big design team here on on staff. You know, we keep it pretty close to the close to the chest.
2: Now, so tell us how you how you got approached about this job. So you were happily sponsored at Kate Spade, doing yes. fabulous work. Yes, yes. Um, big part of the New York design community, vice president of the New York chapter of the AIGA. And then one day your phone rings, and it's somebody from Apple that says, Hey, want to come over and interview? <laughs>
3: I mean, it was, uh, yeah, it, it wasn't so, it was, it wasn't, that's actually pretty much how, how it went down, yeah. And um, I would get this really nice call and was like, hey, let's just have a drink. It's just a drink, right? Okay. I mean, how much, what's a drink? Okay, it's a drink. Two people having a drink. Absolutely. And then, of course, it turns into, you know, I'm in San Francisco and, and, and having a much bigger, we're having dessert, if you will.
2: <laughs> right.
3: You know? Yeah. And it's two weeks later. No, but t- truthfully, it, it was one of those things where, when I got the call, you, you, you know, I think sometimes I think a lot of us, you, you know, you, you you kind of think, oh, that's kind of interesting, mm-hmm. and then a couple weeks into it, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to really, this is something I have to consider, you know. Of course, absolutely. And, uh, and the, I'm you know, surprised
2: just, you even considered it
3: and just, <laughs> just say yes on the phone. <laughs> they were too. Um, <laughs> no, but it was something where you know I, I was very happy in New York, you know, yes. um, but but the opportunity to come out here, not only to to be a part of what is so interesting that's happening at Apple right now and, and, and to be a part of this brand and to really see it from the inside out. But also, you know, a chance to move off to the West Coast was, was kind of a big deal to us.
2: Now, did you ever feel during the interview process that you, once you realized that you did want the job that you might not get it or were you worried that you might not be chosen? Oh, were they for looking sure. at other people? For was sure. there a moment during the interviewing process where you knew you'd nailed it?
3: Um, I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't thinking in those terms, to be honest with you. I, I, I think I, I think I suspected that they they might be crazy enough to con- consider it. Right. You know. So for for sure, yeah. I mean, there was a moment where I said, "Oh gosh, they're they're kind of getting serious, and maybe I'm going to have to make a decision fairly soon." Mm-hmm. But the decision was kind of made for me in a lot of ways. I knew that that it was a chance that I kind of had to take and a move I had to make. And um, you know, it's been wonderful from a creative standpoint, but more importantly, it's been great from a just a life lesson standpoint, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's good
3: to kind of... Traveling is one thing I've discovered. Mo- moving has been, has been great because it kind of just slows time down. Right. You know, the craziness of it all.
2: So my last question for, yeah. for the interview today, Alan, is what, gets you, what, what is the, the biggest thing or the biggest things that get you excited about the work that you're currently doing now?
3: I think what gets me most excited about it is not, not necessarily the, um, the design of it all, you know, that's very important, and I think we know how to do that very well. But it's when we can use design in a way that actually practically helps uh, make the product better, make the experience better, um, and make the, make the company better for it,
2: mm-hmm. for sure. And um, in terms of the actual – I'm sorry, I said one last question. Of course, it leads to like four more now. <laughs> is, is there one particular thing that you um, that gets you most excited about design in general?
3: Gosh, I think I think it's the fact that we as designers are being looked at more for our opinions, not only on typography and photography and, and the craft of it all, but also for an opinion on the consumer's experience and and business and solving problems that used to. I, I don't think we we oftentimes be turned to to solve. Right. You know.
2: Well, thank you for making our world so wonderful with your design work, Alan. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. I really want to thank you for the opportunity to speak so in-depth about your life and your work. Of course. Thank you. And uh, I'd like to also thank uh, our very special sponsor, Adobe, my executive producer, Brian Travis, and Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling. I'd also like to thank Edwin Rivera for his help in writing today's monologue. Um, I also want to speak very, very quickly about a very dear friend that passed this week, my dear friend Sid, just sending my love to Paul and Emily. And joining me next week on Design Matters Live from the AIGA Leadership Retreat in Miami is bad boys for our most requested show, which is always something that confounds me. My guests will be Michael Jagger, Mike Essel, Alberto Rigao, Ray Fenwick, and Mark Ault, an international cast. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. And please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week.
1: Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America
4: Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business.